You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's show is a continuation of a series focused on equity in education. A core value I hold, and that is fundamental to The Table Underground, is the importance of hearing the stories of people directly affected by the issue that we're discussing. So when it comes to education, it is crucial that we hear from students about their own experiences and insights. Mia, Benny, Sebastian, and Brianna are four New Haven, Connecticut public high school students who help lead a group called PREST, People for Race and Ethnicity Studies Today. These four teens have done a lot of learning and thinking on racism in our society and race and culture in schools. So I was excited to sit down and hear all they had to say on the topic. New Haven, Connecticut is a small East Coast city. There are 22,000 students in the school district, which is approximately 40% Black, 40% Latinx, 14% White, 2% Asian, and is a district with very high levels of poverty. New Haven is a vibrant city with an extensive public magnet school program that attempts to address racial and economic segregation by allowing students from surrounding towns to attend many of the city's schools. These four teens speak on a variety of perspectives they hold about being students of color who've experienced schools both in New Haven and in other towns. I'm intentionally using only their first names and not mentioning what schools they attend, as the objective of this interview is not to call out any one school, but to hear the students' insights on race and equity in schools and how these experiences are connected to the larger systems of power that make up our society. I hope you enjoy hearing from these four as much as I did. Hi and welcome. Hi. Hi. So we're just going to go around so we can people can hear your voices. So Brianna. Hi. Can you tell us what grade you're in? I'm a senior. And Mia. Hello. I am a junior. Welcome. And Sebastian. Hello. Hello. Uh, I'm a freshman. And Benny. Hello. Hello. I'm a junior. Thank you all for being here today. You all first came together around this group, Pressed, in New Haven. And the first topic that you came together around was about curriculum Mm -hmm. and about, like, racial justice within curriculum and having curriculum that was meaningful to you and for all students. And so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about why that was important to you and what you were trying to do. Um, A lot of us had noticed uh, in our schools is that a lot of times when we're taught history, most of the time it was white history. And we maybe spent like a month out of the year, particularly February, to focus on black history, which is usually the same people being taught, Dr. Martin Luther King, Harriet Tubman, et cetera, et cetera. And so we kind of came around with this idea that we are tired of learning about the same stereotypical um, African-American leaders. We want to learn, we want to go more in depth in terms of African-American history. And um, so we believe in press that there should uh, that African American and other heritages should have their own history course that should be required for high school students to take because we think it's about time that pe- that non colonizers got their own history course and could learn about their heritage and study it. Yeah, that's super important. I would add on to that and basically say that I think in the wake of like the political climate. Um, this like very unstable, very delicate political climate following the Trump election, people there has been like a huge surge in 
the need for information and the need to be like, okay, so there's something wrong with the system and there's, it's not a new thing, right? Because it goes back to that whole like, okay, Obama's elected, racism is over. And then Trump's (laughs) elected and it's like, no, it's not over. It never never left. Exactly. So, um, press came out of telling our stories, which basically was which went from okay we're gonna have like it's gonna be african-american black people centered and then it was like okay but there are people of color who are not black that have been oppressed right Mm -hmm. and it basically becomes everybody deserves importance Mm -hmm. well everybody is important everybody uh deserves their story to be told so when you basically have one point of view told which is the point of view of the winner they dictate who tells the history, how it's told, when it's told, the manner in which it's told, and the manner and, and who doesn't get who doesn't get a say and who does get a say. And that's not fair, right? So it's basically when like when Sebastian was saying, if it's black history, it's the same three people. Mm-hmm. So you get that idea that the civil rights movement was just those three people and that's it. You know what I mean? And it wasn't. And that's like a big thing about about being in a organization like this one is that you understand that, like, it takes a village. It's not two people, and then, all right, it's over. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it takes a village. It really does. And oppression is such a big thing. And when you learn about, like, real oppression, and you learn about, like, the truth about, like, not just racism, but, like, misogyny and ableism and Islamophobia and homophobia and all these amazing things... Sarcastic, sarcastically, that uh, <laughs> that have shaped the world and shaped how we function, and being confronted with that is a big driving force in pressed wanting to to address it and reduce it to the best of our ability, mm-hmm. especially in the educational field because it's so rampant and it's ridiculous. Yeah. Did you have have something to add to that, or did that sort of cover? Uh, yeah, and kind of like just talking about my own personal experience, I initially was so passionate and excited to join an organization like Press because growing up, I was really just ashamed of who I was and being black because in school I was taught that the only people who were the leaders were white, particularly white males, and that the only kind of like, the only success that black people had was with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and being, you know, freed from slavery and that. That was kind of just it. That was all our accomplishments. We hadn't done anything else. So because of that, I kind of like instituted a internalized anti-blackness inside of me. So. Uh, when did you start to realize that? Um, when I was maybe about eight years old. So this is not necessarily when I realized it, but like between the ages of my like eight to 11, I would have dreams every night that I would wake up and I'd be white. And I'd be really, really happy about it. Because I was like, oh, finally. I, you know, I'm part of, like, the majority. I'm good. Because, like, being black in a predominantly white school, I just always felt kind of, like, out of place and wrong, kind of. And I think I realized that it was, like, some internalized anti-blackness maybe about, like, a year ago. Mm. So when I was about uh, 15 Wow. And so your middle school, you were in school in a different town. Yes. That was primarily white. And now you're through a magnet program. As a black student, you're coming to New Haven to be in a school that's very racially mixed. Yeah, which 
also gave me kind of like a lot of different perspectives and you know things kind of changed with that as well like what I uh, like kind of just like not feeling so bad about who I was and kind of like oh white people are better white people you know are like white girls are prettier or and things like that so just by the nature that you got to be in a school yeah. that had a lot of students of color that that helped yes yeah did you want to share anything um I think um, me, I got it all, but also on top of Price wanting to get race, race and ethnic studies to be a requirement for stu- students in high sc- in um, New Haven high schools, we also wanted um, we also want uh, more uh, teachers of colors um, to teach those classes because they should be taught by teachers of color, and that's something that um, is very like it touches my heart because I've gone to school and had teachers that were predominant were always white I think I've had maybe what I can think of at the top of my head maybe two or three teachers that were black and I'm 17 now and like I've only had like three or black or three or two teachers that were black so that's very important to me to get all of these um teachers of colors to teach these classes and make sure that our message and our histories get um spread um equally and right can you say a little more about why that feels important to you to have teachers of color? I just feel like you, you can't have someone who, our history can't be told by someone who isn't us. When a white person tells um an Af- a history about African Americans, it isn't it can't be you can't feel the same passion or the same importance of that history. They don't you they don't tell it correctly, I feel like. So by having a teacher that can tell that that can tell that story correctly. Get the message across. I feel like it's easier also to um, represent and also to feel that connection with the history. To feel like okay, like that's that I'm a part of that as well. Like I'm that's my history and that's who I am now. Mm-hmm. And it's easier to feel that. Mm-hmm. I would add on to that and expand that and say that it shouldn't be a bunch of white teachers teaching a bunch of brown, black and brown students. This is an inner city. These are inner city schools. Yeah. These are schools where it's incredibly racially diverse. They're in areas that are incredibly racially diverse. Why is the white, only white person in the room the teacher? And not even just in like African studies classes or anything like that. In general, because we have students, we have these teachers are coming from Naukatuck. They're coming from Bethel. They're coming from Madison, from Guilford. Why are you driving all the way down here to this more racially diverse area where students likely don't share your experiences because you don't live in these areas, right? They're 30-minute, one-hour drives they're making down here every single morning to teach us. I'm not saying they're not, like, dedicated. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying it should be students, teachers... Who grew up in the hood or teachers who grew up on Dixwell, mm-hmm. in the hill, in Westville, in, you know, all those kind of areas that should be teaching students who are from those areas. And and when you think about how like students have commitments or like things come up in their families and their personal lives and the teachers who are predominantly white who don't understand these experiences because they don't know what it's like to have a family member shot in the middle of the street at two in the morning. Because that's not a thing that happens in Bethel. It's not a thing that listen, you can't say I'm wrong. You can't. Like it doesn't happen in those areas. Yeah. It does not. So it's like and, and especially like the harsh way I'm kind of segueing to another thing, but, like, the way the teachers treat the black students and the brown students, or, like, students of color in general, and 
how I feel like there's a lack of compassion and a lack of like tolerance when it's just like, listen, I couldn't finish the English paper because I was too busy in the hospital. Actually, because things like that. That happen. reminds me of something that actually happened this morning. Um, so a friend of mine who is African American has been like having like a rough time emotionally and mentally, and like has been like dropping off, like doing work, not doing work, and has really been falling behind. And so this morning, um, he couldn't get his project in on time. And he was talking to um, a friend, just me and a couple of friends. And one of them asked like, oh, how are you? And he was like, oh, I haven't been getting enough sleep lately. Like I'm really tired. And then the teacher overheard and was like, oh, but you got enough sleep today in class because he um, fell asleep during class. And I was like, mm. why don't you ask why he didn't get enough sleep? So, right. um, so yeah. Well, wait, I, I think I think this is um, sort of building off what Mia's saying. I have, no, I have no problem with white teachers teaching, but the, the problem that I do have is that a lot of them they can't relate to the students and don't try to make connections with the students and don't try to understand with where the students are coming from. And more importantly, when it comes to actually teaching us about our history, the biggest problem is that they don't really have a connection to the history that they're teaching. Mm -hmm. They're not well-versed in the history that they're teaching. And a lot of times they're just teaching right from the textbook. And the reason that we want teachers more from the inner city is because we want to have more hands-on assignments that focus on, you know, things that aren't covered in the textbook. We want to learn more. We're all hungry for this more knowledge about our heritage. And that's the biggest, and that's, I think that's the biggest problem with having teachers coming from, as Mia said, from these different cities and towns and who don't make a connection with the students that they're teaching and don't really pay attention to any of the problems that are going mm -hmm. on with them at home. Yeah, thank you. I think those are really important points. I mean, even expanding on that, there's also implicit bias because I've heard accounts of teachers who will, like, discourage college students from doing AP and doing honors classes mm -hmm. because it's like, oh, you don't, you, you, you don't have the grades or... I don't think a teacher likes you enough to give you that recommendation or you should probably stick to general ed because you don't you can't keep up with all the work and it's like or it's like encouraging white students okay go to Fordham go to Wesleyan go to all these good schools but the college students you should maybe look at trying gateway classes you could you look trying like who's tonic I'm not shaming community colleges I'm not let me just say that but it's like but you're showing that the, the teachers sometimes yeah. are undervaluing or they undervalue and students not and, encouraging students. And there's this sense that like students of color cannot achieve as much as white students. And then there is this sense of, okay, now I have to do I have to be twice as good as everybody else. Because now if I screw up if a white yeah. kid screws up, it's just like, oh, they screwed up. If a black kid screws up or a kid of color, especially black, it's you're all stupid. You're, it, they don't say it out loud, but it's like that idea of like you're all uneducated monkeys, you're thugs, you're this, you're that, you're gonna wind up being a baby mama on welfare, or you're gonna wind up, like, being a gangbanger, like, it doesn't matter. So do you feel this from all of the white teachers, or just some of them? I've heard, I've, this is, this is one of those, like, historical type things of just, like, it's not like I go into the room and suddenly, like, it comes over me like a wave, but it's like, it's in the back of my head every time I want to do well. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? How do some of the rest of you experience that? Well... I, I think I might have a different experience than other people in this room because I'm uh, I'm I'm light skinned first of all my father's white um, also you know my parents um, you know like to you know go shopping at like more expensive stores to dress me in nicer clothing so when I when I come to school often I'm treated differently than the other kids because teachers might assume 
that um, since I'm quiet and I get my work done, I might be, you know, smarter than the rest of the kids, which isn't necessarily the case. A lot of the times there's kids that are just as smart, but the teachers don't take the time to actually talk to them and get to know them, that, that they're sort of like in the back of the classroom not really saying anything. And I, I think the point I'm trying to make here is that a lot of the time teachers make generalization based on, uh, and judgments based on uh, what they see. And that shouldn't be the case. The teachers take the time to get to know the students that they're teaching, first of all. Um, but as, um, Building off of that, I feel like, because a lot of times teachers say, hey, Sebastian, would you like to receive some extra work from me, you know, to sort of challenge yourself, or Sebastian, uh, you, you did a phenomenal job on that essay, you should come um, and give more feedback so you can, like, you know, uh, do better, but, like, you know, I never heard this has been offered to other kids. A lot of times, if a student's struggling in a classroom, the teacher doesn't take the time to say, you should come to extra help, and um, I can help you and raise your grade. A lot of times, it's the teacher doesn't care enough. If the students are receiving an NR in a class, the teacher's sort of like, oh, well, it's just sort of a lost cause. I'm not really going to deal with that. Um, but I feel like that shouldn't be the case. I feel like it doesn't matter what, what the student is, the teacher should uh, give the same amount of attention to all the students in the classroom. How do both of you experience that at school? Or just, or just things that have to do with the relationship between teachers and students? Um, I feel like I've had pretty good teachers i mean i have heard complaints from complaints from other te from other students as well so i do take take that into consideration when like saying that but as far as my experience i've never felt like outright racism or um discrimination from my teachers yeah um with that too like i've never felt kind of like that way either but kind of going off what mia said about like though it's always in the back of your mm. mind because when I was growing up, that was always in the back of my mind. I was, also, I always was like, I'm gonna prove them wrong. I'm gonna have my homework in on time. I'm gonna raise my hands for every question, and I just basically pushed myself to be the opposite of what I thought they would expect me to be, Boys and that kind of, uh, that kind of um, built in me where, for the most part, every teacher I had would like liked me and thought I was a good student, and it was just because I was trying so hard not to kind of like fall into the mold of stereotypes that I felt that they kind of already associated with me. Yeah, and to jump off that as well, like, I do remember in school, like, I always used to try to be, like, quiet. I would, like, sit by myself. I would always do my work in class, try not to get into much trouble because I didn't want to be seen as a loud black girl who can't shut up. And so, but now, and now that I've entered high school, I realize, like, I don't care anymore. Like, I'm much more confident now. I speak up more in class and, yeah. When you were in that place of feeling like you had to counteract all the negative stereotypes about yourselves as black students, how did that feel to you? Like, what was the emotional toll or of that on you? I, I was taught as a uh, young, uh, I was taught very young that since I'm black, I'm going to have to try and try twice as hard and be twice as good. I remember my mom reading me a book about a famous golfer who, and the book was literally called Twice as Good. My mom said, like, this is how you're going to have to perform your entire life if you want to have a seat at the table when you get older. You're going to have to be twice as good as everyone else simply because that you're black. And so that's sort of the motto I've always lived my entire life is that I'm going to have to be twice as good as everyone else around me in order for me to make it. <laughs> you talk so obediently. You talk so white for a black person. You're an Oreo. Sorry. You're so obedient. She's one of the most obedient students I have. You're not going to sit here and tell me you've never heard that before. You too. Come on now. You're not going to sit here no, and tell me you've never heard that before. No, I have. Like, and, um, especially in middle school. That's when I heard it a lot. Because that was the first time I went to a school in the city. Because in elementary school, I went to school um, in the suburbs. So I didn't get that um, experience. But when I came into my middle school in New Haven, I got a lot of like, oh, you sound really white. Or you're trying to be white. Like, oh, you, you talk white. And I never 
understood that and that really made me insecure and I would always try and I would struggle with okay well my black friends say I'm sounding white and don't want to hang out with me but I don't want to like sound too black to my white teachers so that I really struggled with that and trying to sort of lead a double life in a way mm-hmm. how about the rest of you Code switching? Anyone? Yeah. Code switching? Well, Hashtag code switching? Well, being half black has, has certainly led for me to have a sort of identity crisis. And so, you know, like <laughs> always always having to switch from my black side to my white side based on the uh, group of friends I'm hanging out with. Mm-hmm. And then I think at one point I was 11 years old when I realized that, like, I'm not black and I'm not white. I'm mixed and it's sort of a different breed in and of itself. So mm-hmm. I need to uh, I need to be myself no matter what group of kids I'm hanging around. And so since then I've always sort of been a, a different person. I don't need to act a different way based on who I'm around. And I just want people to accept me for who I am instead of sort of conforming to what people should, uh, want me to be. Yeah. I mean, these things that you're talking about are are so real. I appreciate you sharing so honestly about it. And um, I've witnessed this my whole life growing up here, and I witnessed it with my kids who are mixed and with my husband who's also mixed, and so and then all my friends who are mm-hmm. here. So, like, I really get what you're talking about. And I'm sort of curious because I'm hearing from you, like, middle school is really rough, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> middle school is, is yeah, rough. And, no and it sounds, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> but, um, but... High school, it sounds like in some ways each of you has had some opportunities to kind of come into yourselves a little bit and feeling some some confidence. I'm hearing from each of you these places where you're feeling like some confidence in your own identity in relation to race or just who you are. And I'm wondering what in your lives or your communities or your families, what kinds of people or like who or what kinds of things are helping to support you in connecting with that, like the feeling like you can be yourself, even if you only feel like that's sometimes or just a part of the time. Well, yeah. um, so what happened for me, and I think, like, the reason, like, high school is better is for, like, two reasons, at least for me. It's one, because I went into a school that was more diverse and accepting, and also I kind of, like, I kind of say, like, knew how to play the game with, like, kind of, like, the code switching and stuff. Uh, growing up in school, I didn't hear much that I sounded white just because I didn't talk in school but like when I would talk with my cousins they'd be like you sound white and I'm like is that a bad thing and I kind of be like confused but like they soon like like taught me like oh you know as a black person you don't like talk like that and at first I was like oh okay but then like as I've like grown and read more I've kind of like just realized that's all based on stereotypes and that you know it just kind of like trying to keep black people in their place with like you talk like this you sound like this you do this and oddly enough, the cousin who said that to me, she kind of, like, like came back a couple years before and was like, that made no sense what I said. So, like, I think we're all learning, you know, kind of, like, going against the um, kind of, like, societal pressures we feel with, like, trying to sound a certain way. And also, too, I kind of just learned uh, from different mentors and family members that you know you're doing well, when you get kind of like criticized so when like I was younger and I got criticized I was like oh this means I have to change but like now my family members are like maybe this means you're doing something right you know so like with sounding white it's going against kind of like the stereotype that black people speak a certain way act a certain way I think that's also like a big thing too of like internal bias and like internal internalized racial oppression in the sense of okay so 
I was taught that if I can't, if I talk this way, I'm less than or I am nothing. And that's not true. You shared some things about like experiences with teachers at school and kind of around race and, and, and teachers understanding students. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about dynamics that you notice um, between students, like either around race lines or class lines or just social dynamics in school. Everyone, I mean, everyone in my, my school is, is definitely predominantly black and Latino, but, you know, we do have, you know, other, we have Asian, a couple Asians and some, you know, obviously some white students as well. And I think, you know, growing up and like, in, personally in my generation, we've been conditioned to be a lot more tolerant of, of everyone. So there is no, you know, implicit or inherent racism in our, or, you know, homophobia or anything in our school. We're tolerant of everyone and we're not, we're not going to judge someone based on uh, any social... Um, so kids aren't saying stuff like that's gay. Like in middle school, that happens all the time. I, I mean, that, okay, that that um, that definitely happens. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like you know, if we were if if you know we were just to, to take the kid and say and have a discussion about you can't you can't say that because that's you know homophobic, they would totally understand and probably stop saying that. It's just we sort of I don't is know. that is that because there's some teaching and learning about that at your school? Yeah. Um, well. I think it's more is that um, we have um, at at my school there's a very there's a very um, I don't I want to say loud but sort of like very vocal um, LGBTQ community mm. and um, and you know if they ever hear anything like that they'll be make sure to tell you hey you cannot say that they'll they'll put you in your place honestly and so I feel like because of that I wouldn't say kids are scared of it scared of them I think that's more of like you're just more aware of what you're saying and you're constantly thinking like making sure like whatever I'm saying, it, you know, it can't be, it has to be, uh, I don't want to say politically correct because there's some negative connotations, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so how does that show up at, the, at your you know, um, right? I think um, at my school, because we do have a lot, uh, mostly predominantly LGBTQ plus um, community um, population in our school, I don't hear that much of it. And if, and if, I did, I think it would quickly be shut down. I do hear it on the bus, though, because we do pick up um, kids from different schools. and So I do hear, but I don't think homophobia yeah. or even racism, a lot of, I don't see, like, implicit races. I don't, it's not implicit, explicit, explicit mm-hmm. but, yeah, no. Um, with the homophobia, um, I do think our school is really accepting. Actually, um, so I uh, go to school out of my district, and when I talk to my brother, and within my district... And like maybe other ones, it's known that my school is, uh, as my brother called it, a fruitcake school. <laughs> so um, which means what? Uh, kind of like people there are um, part of the LGBTQ community, and just that. Like for example, you'll see people who are jocks, you know, like identify mm-hmm. as jocks, friends with you know uh, a queer uh, person, and like that's just like normal. Yeah. And like nobody will make fun of it. But, like, looking in from other students looking in, we'll see that, oh, that's weird. Yeah. Like, why are they hanging out together? Like, he must be queer or gay mm. or something. Mm. Yeah. Do you notice things at school that you think are really ways that students are treated by adults that are really unfair? Sometimes. Because sometimes racism shows up, like, implicit bias shows up as things that are unfair, right? Yeah. Like, um, I don't know if this is unfair, but this is a story I always like to tell nowadays because it made me uh, really mad so um people of color are generally referred to as minorities um and I don't agree with it like I know people have said 
you know, it's based on demographic statistics and stuff like that. But like, I have learned that there's more people of color in the world than white people. So I was talking to a teacher about it and uh-huh. about how like um, I didn't feel comfortable with their use of minority when referring referring to people of color, and I kind of like tried to explain my point, and then uh, two seconds later, they used minority again, and you know I was like I felt disrespected and like my opinion didn't matter, and that they really just didn't care. Mm-hmm. I think there's a huge problem because teachers. We've talked about how teachers can't relate or can't connect, but I think another huge problem about teachers, the relationship between teachers and students, is that they're not invested in our future at all. They don't really care what happens to us unless they're paid to do it, like a college counselor, and they're sending us to various colleges. But, you know, like, you know, your typical math teacher, you know, English teacher, like, isn't doesn't really care, like, where you're trying to go in life. They'll, they'll maybe ask you that. It's like an icebreaker on the first day of school, but other than that, they're going to continue teaching you to, uh, regardless of what you're trying to do. And what what do they do that makes you think that they don't care? Because a lot of they don't because they don't try to help with anything. You know, if like they don't, if someone's struggling, they don't want to help them get better. Them other than what they're required to do by based on what the school is telling them. And if someone says, you know, I want to have extra work, a teacher probably wouldn't do that because mm-hmm. they're just working off what the they're required to do based on their paycheck. Is that so? But you were saying that that some teachers have done that for you. Teachers, but some, that yeah. you don't feel like they do that for everybody. They yeah. do it for like select kids yeah. that they sort of feel like invested in, but not for everybody. Yeah. Something that um I, it, my teacher talked about it in a class like lecture. He said that like a lot of students, especially um people of um students of color, they don't have the same um motivation or their same um desire to succeed in school because. They're not because compared to like white schools or private schools or prep schools, those schools where it's mostly white kids, they're taught that you guys are going to college like no matter what, you guys are always going to pass the SATs. They're taught that they all they have the advantage and that anything is going to happen for them. They can reach the sky, exceed it, go past it. But especially kids um, that are living in um, poverty and they're students of color, they really don't have that same sense of okay I can pass the SATs or I'm gonna go to college so they lose that motivation so they don't have so that they don't feel like they can do well in school so they don't try and so then the teacher says okay well they're not trying and I'm not gonna like let them or give them an easy way out I'm gonna make it tough for them I'm not gonna give them extra credit you you don't want to try in school so then they give up and then the student feels like this teacher doesn't care about me and so then it's like it's just a lose-lose situation so I was do you do you observe this that. in your own school? Or is this yeah, a, mm-hmm. especially this year, I noticed it a lot. Especially after that um, lecture that I had, I noticed that just a lot of kids giving up, and I'm just like, what is going on? And I don't know. And I feel like we don't have a lot of discussions throughout the whole school school about like SATs or the future. It's mostly just as uh, soon as you reach junior year, it's like come into my meeting, come into your junior meeting, and then we'll talk about it. It doesn't not you don't talk about it year by year, you know, you're not like pre- I don't feel like we prepare our students enough for SATs. So then when it happens, it's like, oh, my God, I can't feel this. And then on top of, you know, living in poverty and being a student of color and just already having that amount of pressure. Now you have this and it's like, OK, well, my life is screwed. I don't have a future. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Which is like it's really interesting because like, 
I've witnessed all the things you're talking about, and about ten minutes ago, you all were talking about how you have to be twice as good and 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 have this like incredible motivation, right? Yeah. And so I think that as students of color, there are these very different experiences that different students have, and yeah. we're all affected by mm-hmm. the stereotypes of of what it is to be black in America, yeah, or a student actually, of color in America. So well, another thing, really, with the teachers is that it's I believe that like all oppression is linked. Right? So I feel like you can't talk about racism without talking about, like, other isms. So, but, like, in this case with teachers, it's, like, adultism and ableism. Not ableism. Ageism working. But it's I'm talking about, about, like, ageism and adultism because when you're a teacher, you're in a position of power. Mm-hmm. You have to understand that there are power dynamics in play as well. This is the teacher, the authoritative figure. This person dictates whether or not you go to the office, whether or not you get taught, whether or not you get the privileges, the honors credit, the whatever, whatever, whatever. You know what I mean? So, and they and they determine whether or not you pass the class or fail. Mm-hmm. So it's like they have a lot of power and I feel like sometimes they don't use it for good. Yeah. Because they'll, like, discourage students of color from achieving their full potential because mm. they don't think they can, and that goes back into bias. And when you're an adult, a lot of adults, I've noticed, tend to have this whole sense of, oh, well, I'm an adult, I know everything, and young people know nothing. So it's just like, like when Brianna was talking about how uh, she didn't like how the teacher used the term minorities, and then the teacher used it again, like, a minute later, it's that whole sense of, oh, well, you're just a kid. You don't know anything. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I have all these degrees and I did all these things that you're not, that you didn't do and you're probably not going to do. And, you know, I know more than you. And like, who are you, especially as a little black girl, to sit here and tell me that what words I can and can't use. I want to ask you all about a couple other things. So in line with this, like when there's a conflict at school. Do you feel that there are good tools that students and adults have to deal with conflicts that happen? Like a fight or or other things? No. I don't think they, like, teach it well or they don't promote it well, like, how to deal with it. Maybe they do in, like, teacher trainings or whatever, but as far as, like, students and how to deal with that... No, I I don't think I've ever had a meeting where there's like, okay, if a fight happens, this is what you're supposed to do. This is who you can go to. You can trust this person. Da 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 da. Like my friend didn't even. Know we had a school psychologist until I told her because she was having emotional and mental issues, and I was like, you should go and talk to them. And they were like, we have a school psychologist. Like when did this happen? I'm like we've had them since freshman year, but they don't promote it. And the school psychologist doesn't like go around the school and be like, oh, guys, I'm here. If you ever need help, you can come into my office. Everything is private. Da, 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 da. The only time I've ever heard teachers like talk about going to get help or talk to a counselor or something is like when you um, I had a moment in my creative writing class where we were talking about um, issues that we had. And I talked about um, getting sexually abused in the past. And my teacher was like, oh, well, I had to report this like to the counselor. And I was like wait, what? Nobody told me this. Like, this is all crazy. They didn't tell you about mandatory reporting. No. Okay. But they just did it, and they were like, it's mandatory. And I was like, okay. Like, great. And I had to go talk to the counselor and everything. But And that's when I found out that we had a school psychologist. But they don't promote that stuff. And so students feel like, okay, well, I don't have anyone to talk to. And then things just get bottled up, and that's when, like, fights break out. And then when fights break out, no one knows how to deal with it, so they call security or the what is it, the resource officer who actually has a gun around the school, so you never know what can happen. And then things just go spiral out of control because the school doesn't know how to promote getting help. And, yeah. Well, we actually have a good system in my school of, of um, 
if you're for whatever reason upset with what's going on in the class you can leave and go to someone's office and you know i think that's a that's I think that's a pretty good approach to it because sometimes you know for whatever reason you just might be overwhelmed in school for anything that's going on mm-hmm. and so I feel like I feel like that's a, definitely a good thing that we a good um, aspect that we have in school. That's cool. So it's like explicitly taught to students like, yeah, like if you're having a hard time for whatever reason there mm-hmm. are places you can go. Yeah. That's, yeah. I mean what you just described so perfectly about things escalating like a small conflict yeah. escalating is happens all the time and then students just keep getting suspended and suspended and suspended and so I love that you both just shared these two very different experiences because and that you shared that students aren't really told about the resources that exist because Mm -hmm. you come into school with all kinds of stuff right like who knows what happened before you got to school that day or last year Mm -hmm. or two years ago that is affecting how you're feeling right now so you also mentioned um Security guards. So Mm -hmm. we have a policy in New Haven, as many districts do, that there are metal detectors and security guards at the doors of your schools and that you have to go through the metal detectors to go into school. I under I understand yeah, I understand the I understand what they're doing and like the approach they're trying to take is that you know they're trying to stop anything like anything you know bad from going into the school, but you know I, I sort of feel like it's you know it's sort of criminalizing the public education system because you know you walk in and they check your bags and you go through a metal detector it's like like what is this like an airport you know like am I entering like a, a prison, so I feel like I don't I don't like how sort of I know he says I don't like how criminalized this approach is and like you know. Like when I, I I went to a private school before this, and uh, you know I felt like such uh, just in, in contrast to the school I go to now, I felt such a uh, much more welcoming environment because you know we weren't our bags weren't searched, we weren't didn't have to go through metal detectors, you know we were just welcome at the school. Yeah, and I think I've talked about that. Like I hate like policing schools, and um, I was gonna say they police a lot of inner city schools, which is like so wrong because a lot of the gun sh- Shoot, the school shootings that we've heard of lately happen in suburb schools, which is interesting because I went, I did go back to my elementary school, which is in the suburbs, and there was like no security guard. I literally just walked in the back door. They didn't even like hit the intercom or anything. I just walked mm-hmm. in and went to the office. But like my school, you had to walk in through the back. Like even though there's two m- multiple ways to get into the school, I have to walk in through the back or through the security guard and go through the um the metal detector. The metal detector. And I just, it's why, like, and just recently this year, we got a resource officer who actually has a gun walking around the school. And I'm just like, what has happened in our school that's so bad that we need a resource officer who has a gun walking around the school every single day from the moment we walk into the moment we leave the school? Like, nothing has happened, even in our surrounding neighborhood, which we live right downtown, and nothing crazy has happened so far that... Need, that warrants the need of a resource officer with a gun in school. I'm, but I'm it's really like, interested in how, like what you said. Like I want to hear more about how this makes you feel. Yeah. Being it in makes school me uncomfortable. Like and what I worry the most is that now, like my peers think that we shouldn't police more schools because we had a conversation right after the Douglas shooting happened in my um, my law class, and one of my one of the students who was. Um, light skin was like um which i find interesting but he was like we should have more um police officers more security guards more metal detectors and i was like you're not taking into consideration like the black kids who are gonna like feel the pressure on this who 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 already don't feel comfortable with the one resource officer walking around here and now you want to add more um officers into schools and i don't think um that he took into consideration the inner cities and but 
what worries me is that like a lot of students agreed with this and were like, yeah, we should police in our schools, but they don't take into consideration consideration what's really going to happen and how that's going to make everyone else feel. Because already a lot of black kids feel like, okay, this is so weird. Like they don't feel comfortable walking around every time the resource officer with the gun walks around. They're like, oh my God, like we got to walk around the other way of the hallway. Yeah. And that, and, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, and I've heard like uh, stories from uh, my peers about how like, the security guards have like followed them yeah places you know when they were just going to like the library or something to return a book and you know the security guard is following them mm-hmm. and they're like why, why are they following me mm. also um uh just based on like you know like the media and everything that's been going on lately is that black people naturally are sort of intimidated by police officers and so that's why, you know, I, I sort of don't like the idea that there's police officers or security guards in our schools. However, I, I would like to note that um, my school is in a good job of making sure that all the security guards are black or officers were black. So, you know, that way and um, we're able to form a better connection with them. And like, you know, they're, they a lot of the times uh, I know a lot of students have like meaningful conversation with the security officers there. And they're sort of and honestly, they have better connections with us than the most of our teachers, which I think is sort of which I sort of think is a good thing. Uh, but you know the whole idea of the fact that we have there's such a d- huge disconnect between um, black people and the and our local police is, is told on the uh, is a whole like another story. Yeah, to be honest. yeah, and I agree with uh, what you were saying about the connection. Uh, yeah, because like I was hearing uh, one of the security guards in our school, uh, uh, who's a black female, talking about how like you know she and she's also a police officer and like when they're kind of like on their um, like patrol and they see a bunch of black kids hanging out on the corner. And, like, the white cop wants to go check out what's happening. She's like, no. Like, I used to hang out on the, that corner with my friends. And, like, she understands, like, they're just, like, hanging out. Just, mm-hmm. you know, being right. themselves. Where, you know, somebody who hadn't did not have that experience, we see it as threatening. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious. Like, I've witnessed all the complexity of what you're saying. And I'm curious about, um, do you observe security guards or the resource officers, which are a little different than security guards, but similar, like in uniform, yeah. have a, yeah. some have a gun, some don't, but they're still like a, a like police model security presence. Um, and they have special training to be in schools, right? But have you witnessed either the security guards or the resource officers playing a role of like trying to de-escalate conflicts or... Um, things that should be left to a social worker or a school psychologist or other things. Like, do you observe them being yeah. put in a so position often. to do something? So I'm, yeah. I'd like, I have witnessed that as well. And I'd like to, and this isn't to badmouth them. I think this happens because schools don't often have enough adults mm-hmm. for all the things that are needed to be done in schools, right? Like some mm-hmm. of them have a part-time psychologist, a part-time guidance counselor. And so that often happens that um, resource officers as people in positions of power in schools end up, yeah, being yeah. taking the yeah yeah, I, and so I, I'm curious yeah. what you've observed. Well, yeah. you know, I, I you know I think I mentioned that like a lot of the times the kids make much more meaningful connections with the resource officers, security guards, than the actual teachers or what you know whatever you know half part time psychologist works at the school. And you know, I think I think that could be a good thing that you know sort of it's a natural relationship being developed between a you know a, a you know a. Uh, um, authoritative figure and a student but also feel like there's other people that get paid to do that and aren't really doing their job about it and and it's not the security guard or resource officer's job yeah I've seen like there was a fight um, not a fight but it was gonna like escalate into a fight earlier this year like right in the main hallway Um, and someone was like get the security guard and I was like wait no 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 we don't want to get the security guard but they came anyways and they like broke up the argument and like talked to the um the two girls that were arguing and like try to get them to calm down relax and they like 
went like took a walk around the school just asking them like why did why they get into a fight like what was going on and I just felt like we have like counselors and like social workers and um school psychologists like that should be doing that or at least like teachers should be like going in not like security guards um like just coming in and doing Mm -hmm. the jobs that we have people paying getting paid to do that but so I agree with you and um what you just described of the security officer taking a walk with the student and talking it out is really powerful right they weren't just like putting using force and they weren't just doing like overly punitive stuff to deal with the situation and that's actually sometimes it's like whoever's there has to deal with it so that's I think a good example of even if it was even if it was something that might have been better to have the school Mm -hmm. psychologist help them with at least they weren't just like punishing them that they were trying to help yeah. in some other and way. I think that happens too because um, particularly in my school a lot of students feel that when they go to the uh, guidance counselor's office there's nobody around to talk yeah. to so it'll be like either the secretary will say sorry you gotta come back another time or their counselor's just absent so now where do they go so they will go to like the security guards mm. who are just like you know usually around. like yeah just around who can like just stay for a minute and talk with them so I think that's why sometimes like that those relationships are built because, like, they're also more, like, seen. Mm. Where, like, the guidance counselors are most of the time in their office in the corner of the school. Yeah. But the security guards, you see them in the stairwell, you know, they're like, hey, how are you? And so there's more social interaction because yeah. they're around. That's mm-hmm. what they yeah. have to do. So I want to really thank you all for sharing so honestly about this. I know that that's not always the easiest thing to do. And you, you talked about a lot of really important stuff. And I'm glad that people will get to hear about all your different perspectives on life at school. So thank you all so much. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you to Hillary Bridges of Prest for supporting the work of these teens and for helping to make this interview possible. And to Brianna for her leadership in organizing the group. Thank you as well to the Graustein Memorial Fund for the support of our Equity in Education story series and to WNHH and the New Haven Independent for getting them out on the public airwaves. Check out thetableunderground.com for more info, photos, links, and past shows. You can listen in there or on any podcasting site. Join our mailing list and follow us on all the social medias to stay in the loop. I'm your host, Tegan Engel, and this is The Table Underground. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio.